You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Well, to prepare for the Lord's Supper today, we're going to look uh, and reflect on Psalm 86. Psalm 86 is not a particularly well-known psalm, but as I hope you will discover today or be reminded of today, it is certainly full of grace and truth. It's printed for you in the worship folder if you don't have uh, a Bible with you. Psalm 86, this is uh, God's Word. A prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is... God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would bow down and hear the whispers of our fears and comfort us with your committed love. Make your truth here plain to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 86, it seems to me, is certainly a psalm for our times because really when you cut through it all, Psalm 86 is really just a simple, heartfelt plea for help. And who of us in these uh, rocky times hasn't been there, right? Lord, help me. Help me. This is today a short communion meditation, so I'm not going to deal with all of the richness here in Psalm 86. 
we could spend a lot of time in it. Instead, I'm going to focus on three, just three realities that come out of this prayer. And here are the headings. Uh, first, the love of God is not inconsistent with your trouble. The love of God is not inconsistent with your trouble. Second, the heart condition that magnifies your trouble. The heart condition that magnifies your trouble. And then third and finally, the love that comes down and will not let you go. The love that comes down and will not let you go. That's the outline. So here we go. First, the love of God is not inconsistent with your trouble. And if that sounds familiar to you, it should. This is a theme that we keep coming back to, it seems, week after week. Uh, really for two reasons. One, because it's all over the Bible. And two, and maybe because the, it, the, the Bible writers knew it, we too often functionally forget this truth that the love of God is not inconsistent with our trouble. There are three levels of trouble here that, that David is experiencing and identifying in Psalm 86, and I suspect you know these three levels as well. The first level is in verse one. There's personal frailty there, personal weakness. I am poor and needy, David prays. It's being in that awareness that you are not in possession of the internal resources and fortitude uh, to battle and overcome your troubles. We've all been there. And then the second level is in verse 7. And, and, and what you see there is, is not personal weakness, but adverse circumstances. And David refers to those uh, generally as in the day of my trouble. Another way to translate that would be to, to say in the day of my dire straits or in the day of my distress. It's being in that situation where you're having your life dominated by overwhelming negative circumstances. Something I know many of you have gone through and are going through. And then finally, the third level is you see in verse 14, and it's human hatred. Insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men ha seeks my life. Now, of course, you may not have people trying to kill you, but most of you know in one way or another what it is to have people hurt you uh, or hate you or oppose you. Now, when we're living under this sort of multi-layered trouble, it's easy to lose hope. It is. I, I recently read a, uh, about a pastor, American pastor in the 1950s, uh, who, uh, inspired by a trip to the Holy Land, uh, decided to bring the Holy Land to Kentucky. And so what he did was he, he went out and raised a bunch of money. He bought a, 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 some land. He imported trees and plants from 24 different countries uh, and, and constructed a garden. Uh, 
he, he was sort of modeling it, I, I think, at the garden where the, uh, the garden tomb is uh, in, in Jerusalem. So it's, it's this serene garden. There, he, had a, he created a replica empty tomb. There was a prayer chapel uh, and this beautiful uh, uh, statue of Jesus. And he called it the Garden of Hope. And he, this pastor hoped that the Garden of Hope would be a, a place that people could come and in, in the quietness and the beauty of the place uh, find hope again. But almost as soon as it opened, the Garden of Hope disappointed. People, uh, the, the, the plants from the 24 different countries didn't take well to the Kentucky climate. And, uh, and, and died off. Uh, people didn't come in, the, in, the, in sufficient numbers. The, the pastor never saw the crowds he was hoping for. And so the Garden of Hope couldn't meet its financial uh, nut and soon went bankrupt. And it shut down. Weeds grew everywhere. The chapel was chained shut with a padlock. The statue of Jesus, this lonely statue of Jesus, looking out over this mess, was rusting out. And it really is, when you think about it, there, there's the sign, right? The Garden of Hope. And then you look at it. It's, it's a poignant, pathetic, really sad uh, picture, isn't it? An image, uh, a vision of failed hope. And, I, and I, I tell you that story and, and bring that vision to your mind because I think that's some, it's, it's for you, it's, for some of you, it's how life feels, right? You come to church, you might have a sign on your forehead, you know, I'm good, I'm hopeful. But inside, man, it, there are weeds and rust and locks because you are just laboring under all kinds of, of trouble and affliction and you don't have hope. But Psalm 86 reminds us, as do countless other passages in the Bible, that God's love and God's hope is not inconsistent with your trouble. Because what it makes clear is that God doesn't save you from trouble. He always saves you through it. Too many Christians, Christians functionally believe that if their life is full of trouble, right, if th th then God must be mad at them or God must be punishing them or God must uh, have forgotten them or God doesn't care about them or God has sidelined them. And so the trouble causes them to lose hope. Psalm 86 is just one more reminder along the way and in the midst of our trouble that God isn't just the God of the good times, that God is Lord of our trouble. He's sovereign even over our trouble and he wisely and powerfully uses your trouble for good and redemptive purposes, right? To shape your character, to grow you, to mature you to change the direction of your life, to equip you to bring comfort and counsel to other people who may be struggling like you. And most importantly, and I, this is, this is the, I think, the, silver, the best silver lining of all of our 
suffering and trouble and affliction. And that is that it causes us to lean harder on Jesus. And in doing that, we are reminded and we remember that our hope is in a person. And that person is Jesus. Our hope is not in our circumstances. Friends, Jesus will get you through. Jesus is your hope. So the love of God is not inconsistent with your trouble. He loves you, and in that love you can find hope. Second, the heart condition that magnifies your trouble. You know, as if our trouble wasn't enough, uh, you and I have a heart condition that makes our troubles worse. At the very center of this psalm is a prayer. It's verse 11. It's a remarkable prayer. I wish we had time to unpack it all, but for our purposes today, I just want to focus on the second half of that prayer um, where it says, Unite my heart to fear your name. I mean, if you just meditate that on for a minute, you'll realize in just a few words how much truth is packed in there and how, how powerful a prayer that is. Unite my heart to fear your name. You see, what, what's going on there is that D David, in this little prayer, is diagnosing his own heart condition, and you and I have the same heart condition, and that is we have divided hearts. David would not pray to God to unite his heart unless his heart was divided. And your heart and my heart is divided. What that means, to have a divided heart, is that, is that you are God-wired to find your ultimate purpose and significance and identity and happiness in your relationship to Jesus. That's how you're God-wired. But at the very same time, you are also sin-wired to find your ultimate purpose and significance and happiness and identity in almost anything other than Jesus. And so, this, so, so with divided hearts, what we do as Christians is, was, is we reach out with, with one part of our hearts and grab Jesus, but we reach out with another part of our hearts and, 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 and grab something else, some other thing that we have deemed ultimate, that we've deemed absolutely necessary for our happiness and significance and identity. In our culture, that can be a lot of things. It could be career, maybe approval of other people, maybe a romantic relationship, maybe recreation, or family, or country, or moral duty. Now, you'll notice that all of those things are good things in, in and of themselves. But listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote in a letter uh, about these sin-wired ultimates. That our, that our, that our sin-wired, divided hearts produce. He says, every one of them, every one of them, career, approval of people, success, romantic relationships, recreation, family, country, duty, all of those things, every one of them, followed for its own sake 
and isolated from its source becomes an idol whose service is damnation. That's a strong statement. Every one of them followed for its own sake. So, right, take a hard one because this, this is one that where our hearts uh, can, can, you know, we can, we can functionally live as if it's all about family, right? Family first, right? I've got to have family. My family has to be a certain way, right? But if you follow family for its own sake, and if you, if you love and, and are devoted to your family for, for its own sake and isolated from the one who gave you the family, God, then even something as good and wonderful and as powerful as a family can become an idol whose service is damnation. Now, do you see how this magnifies your trouble? See, if something... If there's something other than Jesus, it, right, your divided heart is grabbed onto something and you have to have that thing to feel worthy or successful or happy, then if you don't get it, then you're not just going to be sad, you're going to be destroyed, Right? You're not just going to be disappointed, you're going to be undone. And every one of those idols will, will, will let you down, right? Family will let you down. Career will let you down. I, I, I recently came across an editorial, a revealing editorial. It was written by a, a reader to a London newspaper non-religious man, he identified himself as non-religious, an atheist. And, and in this essay that, he, that was published, he, he, uh, he confessed that his career had been his idol. Now he didn't use the, that word, but listen to what he did say. Now and keep in mind, this is an atheist. He's, I'm quoting now, I spent 20 years of my life trying to prove to myself that I was worthy. I saw every failure as a sign that I was worthless. Part of the evidence against my soul. I saw every success as something I had to grab onto, hold onto for dear life whenever the court case was brought against me. Isn't that fascinating? There's a non-religious man uh, writing about his his life experience of making career his ultimate value and he's talking about it this non-religious man in very religious terms right so and and be what it shows of course is that we are god wired for him we're God wired to be religious, and if you're rejecting God, it's it it is you're not worshiping nothing. You're you're worshiping something, right? And for this man, it was his career, it was his ultimate. So because he had to have that to be a worthy person, every little career failure wasn't a disappointment; it was destruction.
It was evidence that he was a worthless person, evidence, as he said, against his soul. Yeah, that's not disappointment. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be disappointed. That's natural. But to be, dis but to be in despair, to be destroyed, then you've got an idol. See, you've See how you magnify, how, how your divided heart has just magnified the trouble? Oprah Winfrey said it very succinctly. Every day, she said, every day you're only as good as your last show. That's a tough creed to live by. What if your last show stunk? Right? Now you're a bad person. Divided hearts magnify your trouble. So you and I need to pray along with David that, that God would unite our divided hearts, right? So that we would fear God alone. You know, not be afraid of him, but to fear in the sense of having an affectionate reverence for God alone. Not, a, not an affectionate reverence for family, for career, for, for money. And if we do that, it, it, look, it, to fear God is to no longer be afraid of God or his judgment. And it's also, for that matter, not to be afraid of anything else. Like what people think about you or what people can do to you or what disease can do to you or what even death can do to you. A heart united around the fear of Jesus alone has nothing to be afraid of. And you see what that does? That shrinks the impact of your trouble. It doesn't get rid of your trouble. Your trouble's still there, but your trouble doesn't become a life-destroying, life-altering, life, or life-despairing kind of event. Okay, finally, the love that comes down and will not let you go. You know, David expresses a confidence here. You heard it as we read through the psalm. Uh, he's, he's confident that God's going to get him through uh, this, this season of difficulty in his life. And what makes him sure of that is God's love for him. That's why he's confident. He's optimistic because he knows God loves him. And he describes that love in various ways, but I want to point out two ways, uh, important ways, that, that, that David identifies and sort of leans on and trusts in and is confident in God's love. First, right at the beginning, David describes God's love for him as a love that stoops down, that bends down. It's there in verse 1 where, where our translations, and it's a perfectly good translation, incline your ear to me, O Lord. Uh, that word incline there literally means bend down or stoop down. I, I suppose we say incline because it sounds more poetic, but it, we, we miss 
I think the, 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 the more powerful image of bending down, stooping down, the picture is of, of, of the greater bending down, stooping down to the lesser. I thought about you know, watching my son-in-law, Clint, with his little daughter, uh, Evie, at the, at the beach, and she, would, she was always very brave and would run up to, to, to the waves, and, and Clint, with that watchful eye, would, would, would be there, and whenever a wave would c come in that was going to topple her, he would bend down and scoop her up, right? Those big strong arms, right? And he'd go, that's okay, Evie. I'm here, I love you. I'm gonna protect you. Stooping down love of God. That's what David, that's how David understands God's love for him. But then even more importantly, and, and this, be, and, and, and you guys know the importance of repetition in Hebrew, how, how that really is a, a way to emphasize something. No less than three times in this psalm, verses 5, 13, and 15, David rests his ultimate confidence not just in the bending down love of God, but in the steadfast love, the committed love, the backed by an oath love, the never letting go love, the covenant love of God. Verse five, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. There's, that's the word, steadfast love. That's that famous Hebrew word chesed, which is so hard to translate. Verse 13, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, from this is that famous uh, phrase that is repeated all over the Old Testament. It comes from Exodus when God identifies his name to Moses, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, David is optimistic even in the face of his trouble because he knows and trusts in the bending down and steadfast love of God. Now, we don't see much of that optimism out there in the world today, do we? We live in an age of pessimism. The late, great uh, Jewish writer Saul Bellow, in one of his novels, making a commentary about life in the sort of the last half of the 20th century, um, said it this way, and I, even though it's a little dated, I think, I think his observation is still true today about, about our culture. Um, he put it this way, what, what, what is the philosophy of this generation? Not God is dead. That period was passed long ago. Perhaps it should be stated, death is God. This generation thinks, and this is its thought of thoughts, that nothing faithful, vulnerable, 
or fragile can be durable or have any true power. Death waits for these things as a cement floor waits for a dropping light bulb. Well, that's a bleak vision of our age, isn't it? But I think it's true. For most people, I mean, we've, we've, ex we, we've bought into the lie that death is natural, that death is just the inevitable reality, that death wins, that death gets the last word. But against that pessimism of our age, friends, we have even more grounds than David did to be optimistic, even in the face of our trouble. Now David, right, was a, held unique position in redemptive history, right? He's a, a, unique, a unique individual, and, and as such, he heard much and saw much from God. But you, you and I live on, on the other side of a reality that David never saw. He looked forward to dimly, but he never saw it. And that's the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of the Messiah, Jesus. The seed of the woman. In God's steadfast love for you, in his never letting go of you love for you, God became, in Saul Bellow's words, vulnerable and fragile. God became vulnerable and fragile. He became a human being. He became like you. And in his vulnerable and fragile humanity, also borrowing Saul Bellow's words, Jesus was faithful. Faithful for you faithful unto death, even death on a cross. So because of Jesus, Christian friends, your judgment day has already happened at Calvary. Because of Jesus, God will never deal with you according to your sins or reward you according to your iniquities because God has already dealt with Jesus according to your sins and rewarded Jesus according to your iniquities. Because of Jesus, your soul will never go to the depths of hell because Jesus already went there in your place. Because of Jesus, you are now declared to be righteous in the sight of God and dear to the heart of God. And none of those blood-bought realities will ever, ever change. In Jesus, fragility and vulnerability and faithfulness became eternally durable and powerful. Jesus' resurrection means that even death ultimately loses. And so you are free to live and die without fear because we will live eternally. And all of these wonderful realities, friends, are 
signified and sealed to you uh, right at this table and by the eating of this simple meal together. The bread representing the body of Jesus, the blood representing, uh, the uh, wine representing the blood of Jesus spilled for you, spilled for you out of his steadfast love for you. So as we come to Jesus' table, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your never letting go love for us, your bending down love for us. Thank you that even in the midst of our trouble, we can be confident and hopeful and optimistic because we know that you love us. And we see that in Jesus. Help us to see it afresh as we eat this meal together. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.